Hey there, it's Laura. Welcome to TMST. I am so glad you're here. So I'm going to ask you some easy questions to get into today's episode. First, do you know any veterans? How about medical first responders like EMTs or people who work in emergency rooms? Know any firefighters or law enforcement? Where am I going with this? Well, the reality is there are millions of veterans and first responders in America and, of course, abroad. So even if we think we don't know someone directly who has served or is on the front lines, we can be sure we are probably no more than one connection away from them. And like all of us, the pandemic took its toll on these folks. Many of them were literally the first line of protection and care and support for all of us. And then if you think about the 20 years of the global war on terror and the millions who have deployed or were deployed in that time, this is a huge population. So all of us, every single one of us has a duty to know what's happening in their worlds and be part of their solution network. But what does that mean? Well, this is where Dr. Kate Pate comes in. She looks at the ways our brains impact our bodies and so much more than that too. The thing I want you to know about Kate is that she's super focused on the health and healing needs of our veterans and first responders, which means that Kate is focused on matters that impact our entire society. And that's why she's perfect for TMST. Her perspective is grounded in healing. And although she works directly with this population, what we talk about is relevant to all of us, either because we're connected to these folks or need similar healing ourselves. She totally gets the role recovery plays in this equation. And she's just one of the most impressive and insightful people that we've met. I think you're going to love her. As always, please remember that listener support makes this show possible. So if you can do five or 10 or $20 a month, it makes it possible to bring conversations like this one with Dr. Kate Pate to you. You can go to tmsdpod.com to support the show. All right, here is Dr. Kate Pate. Enjoy. Hey, Kate. Welcome to TMST. Hi. Thank you. Yeah. So we have talked to all kinds of people on the show, and you are the first fellow native Rocky Mountain Westerner. (laughs) Woohoo! Colorado for me, Montana for you, yeah? Yep. I was in Colorado for 11 years, though. I could go on and on about introducing you um, because your work is so broad and deep. But we we love the haiku of your IG bio, so I'm going to read that for everyone. PhD neurophysiologist, military medical researcher, integration coach, educator, advocate for military veteran and first responder issues, Montana. <laughs> yep. In a nut. In a nutshell. <laughs> in a nutshell, it's great. Uh, and you also do 
target shooting, which is so <laughs> badass to watch. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm new to the community, but it was a ton of fun learning this past weekend. And hopefully it sets me up for success as a new hunter, which oh. is something else that I've gotten into and passionate about, especially out here in the West. It's, that's, it's incredible. That's so great. It's, it's amazing yeah. to watch. If anyone wants to watch amazing videos of a woman doing target shooting, head over to IG. <laughs> so let's start with your family uh, and background and how they intersect with your research and what you do for work. Sure. Yeah, I, I come from a military family. And that doesn't mean that, you know, we necessarily moved around because of the military or anything like that. Although my dad served, he wasn't on active duty or anything. When, when my brothers and I were young, he had done all of that prior um, to, to having us kids. But you know, it was a part of his life. It was a part of my uncle's and grandfather's lives. Uh, two of my three brothers served in the military and um, the military and history, even military history was just a part of our family conversation uh, and our culture. Yeah. And it's a, a common thread that was always present and colored a lot of how we looked at the world growing up. And um, that intersected with my work in um, 2015 when I had been doing medical research for in a number of different areas over the years, but um, I had been doing medical research and was teaching at a medical school in Colorado when a small company approached me uh, with um, a need for help. They had just gotten a uh, grant or a contract from the government, from the Department of Defense to do a, a study of military medical product to see if it was efficacious for a particular uh, use on the battlefield. And um, they really wanted some help with that. And so they approached me and I started consulting for them. And that turned into a uh, full-time job. And then that led to me starting my own company. But the reason that that was interesting at the time was because my brother was uh, a medic. One of my brothers was a medic in special operations in, in the army um, yeah. at the same time. And so it was a very cool way for me to combine my career and expertise and interests with uh, that, that part of our family and to be able to connect with my brother over these topics that were really Im imperative um, and really in need of uh, innovation. So it was a cool way for me to um, share that bond with him a little bit and, yeah. and um, really try and do some good in the world instead of, you know, being in a laboratory where you're pipetting all day long and you're not sure if your work's ever going to make an impact. This was a very different kind of feeling where you, you could see the people that you were actually impacting. So your work with veterans and first responders, first, I would just love you to talk about what it is you do with them. Um, but mm -hmm. it isn't just clinical. I say just very lightly. Um, you have a really broad network uh, in many ways with those communities and you, you're integrated with them at various different points. Can you talk mm -hmm. about what, what it is you do for them and, and what that looks like? Yeah. So I'm not a therapist. I'm not a clinical psychologist. I just want to put that disclaimer out there. Mm -hmm. um, I am a, a certified coach, but what I, what I do with these communities is really try to work with them on an individual basis to come up with a plan of action that will help them achieve the level of wellness and a quality of life that one, they deserve, but two, that they're looking for. And the reason that's a thing is because uh, many folks who come from these backgrounds have experienced things like chronic stress, traumatic brain injury, 
um, toxic exposures even, and mm-hmm. um, they are dealing with a lot of really complex symptoms. And folks over the years have come to me knowing my background in medical research and my background in traumatic brain injury and um, have had questions about themselves, knowing, like being able to, to be aware that something's not right, they're not okay, and they're reaching a level of desperation yeah. where they don't know where else to go and they have nowhere else to turn. And so they're like, Kate, you know, I don't know what's going on, but I, I know I'm not okay. I don't know what to do. I've been to, you know, the traditional channels of healthcare or the VA or, or wherever. And um, they don't, they don't believe me or they're telling me I have XYZ diag- diagnosis. And like they're what, giving some me, personality disorder or? Well, there's a, it's, you know, unfortunately, and I don't want to perpetuate this, because it is a little bit of a stereotype and it's improving. But what has happened in the past is that a lot of folks were getting slapped with the label of PTSD. And right. that wasn't that wasn't always true. In uh, many cases, it wasn't true. And for people to just be told that they have PTSD and that, hey, this is your new normal. And now you have to be on these prescriptions uh, mm-hmm. upwards of, for some of my friends, 15 different prescriptions. Oh, my God. And they're you know, they can't sleep, they're a mess, the meds are pushing them all over the place. And then, you know, the psychotherapy that they're required to, to um, go through, you know, the, the therapists often don't, can't relate or don't understand or are not helpful and supportive. So people actually end up getting worse. And as you've probably heard, there's uh, another epidemic going on. Um, that's uh, one of suicide in this yeah. community. Yeah. And Part of that, when you look at the people who have been, um, who have chosen that as their path, you know, they had been on a a bunch of different prescriptions, often alcohol is on board, firearms are used. So there's a lot of different factors playing into it. But across the board, people have not been okay. And I think many of them were afraid that if they didn't get help, they would follow that same path and they would choose to not be here anymore. And Mm -hmm. it's really hard to lose your friends when you know they made it through combat and they come home and they choose to take their own life here at home and to see that over and over again of course people are going to start to be afraid that they might succumb to the same yeah. path and make the same choices and you know i i am not an expert in mental health and i'm not a psychologist and so when people would come to me with these questions and these fears i felt pretty ill equipped to be able to help and that set me on the path that I'm on now, which is really just trying to understand as much as I can of, of the research, of what we actually know, published research, but also experientially for myself and for those that I've worked with, what do I know that has been helpful or, or harmful for myself and for others? Um, what are some alternative ways that we can help each other and uh, promote wellness, promote healing mm-hmm. and optimize mental, physical, spiritual health? Because yeah. we, we have to do it differently. What has been done is um, not helping people. And it's, it's got, we've got to change it. Yeah. What is neurophysiology? <laughs> I get this question all the time. I'm, I'm <laughs> sure you do. And I'm sure lots of people are wondering after yeah. I read that coup. So can you just tell us what it is? Sure. Well, and a, a lot of people see it and they just, their brain just goes neuropsychology. So people automatically just assume, oh, right, psychology, she's a psychologist or whatever. And that's, that's not true. Yeah. <laughs> um, so essentially, neurophysiology is the study of how 
the brain influences or controls physiology. It's like the functional approach to the brain body connection. And it is a research background and it's not a clinical background, meaning I'm a PhD, not an MD. So the reason I studied it is because I have always been fascinated by the brain. And I was telling a friend recently that we were just talking about being younger and the things that we were interested in. And I was one of those kids that had like at 10 years old books on neuroscience, like neuroscience for dummies, like learning how to pronounce these really weird words like hippocampus, <laughs> things like that. And uh, I just was always fascinated by it. So as a neurophysiologist, you look at the, the brain-body connection and that can mean anything from like prosthetics to trauma recovery. Mm-hmm. So you've been doing a lot of work, as I understand, with traumatic brain injury and which is like you said, huge and tragic among veterans. Can you help us understand what traumatic brain injury is? It's often referred to as TBI. Mm -hmm. And why it's such an issue for this generation of warfighters. Absolutely. Traditionally, people have thought of traumatic brain injury as the image that we get from like the NFL, for example, where it is impact, uh, the brain impacts something. So you get what's called like blunt, blunt trauma. So that is also very common. People don't realize this, but traumatic brain injury is c- extremely common in the civilian world. Car accidents, other types of accidents and falls, things like that absolutely contribute to traumatic brain injury and, and the high rates of it in the civilian population. So it's not just a sports thing or a military thing. It's, a, it's across the board, something that people deal with. But we traditionally saw it in, you know, that became more famous with the um, the NFL and the discovery of chronic traumatic encephalopathy or CTE, as many people may have heard. And that's sort of the traditional picture. But what's been happening in the military and the global war on terror, which is essentially from September 11th, up until we pulled out um, of Afghanistan uh, last year, that 20 year span of warfare, the hallmark injury was uh, a blast trauma. And the the reason for that being the heavy use of improvised explosive devices or IEDs that the um, that was just it was like the most common form of uh, weapon in in the global war on terror that people were, you know, it seemed like every I mean, it just was so common. It seemed like you would hear about it almost every day in the news. And it wasn't that common, but that's what it felt like when you're reading these stories. And not only that, so that's that's very true with regard to what was happening in the theater and combat, but people were also using um, heavy uh, um, artillery and machine gun fire and flashbangs and different things like that during training where even in training alone, people were getting exposed to different types of blasts. And that is a different type of injury than what we saw with blunt trauma, where you, you know, see heads, helmets smashing, smashing. against each other. In the, yeah. With blast injury, it's a pressure wave that essentially sends a shock through, you know, your brain is mostly water. So you can imagine as the shock wave moves through your body, it's, there's a lot of shearing forces that happen on the brain that cause injuries. And, to make things even worse, usually if there is a blast, 
there's often blunt trauma too. So you get some sort of, you know, maybe you personally get thrown into the air and then you hit your head when you fall, or there's debris that gets thrown into wow. you that hits your head. So you get both, you get blast and blunt trauma. Um, wow. And although they're different forms of injury, the symptoms seem to be very similar, like the long-term symptoms seem to be very similar. Under a microscope, it looks different. And CTE is not the same thing that happens after blast trauma. It's a different term um, for blast trauma. It's, it's called um, interface astroglial scarring or IAS. So it, it's like the version of CTE, basically, that you get from blast trauma. Got it. Um, just an injury pattern for those who are interested. But the symptoms, at, at the end of the day, the symptoms do seem to be very similar. And what are the symptoms, some of the, the main ones that... Yeah, um, it, it depends for each person, but following any kind of head injury when people are beyond the acute phase and they're more in the, the chronic phase and they're dealing with these long-term symptoms, they can have chronic sleep disruptions. So maybe you used to sleep well and you no longer do. Um, that, of course, makes healing even harder. As we all know, sleep is super important for healing. Yeah. Um, so sleep, sleep disruption, um, cognition problems, so memory issues, mood issues, you could have complete mood swings, you could be irritable, you could be depressed, um, increase in addiction, it makes it much, much harder to uh, execute impulse control when you have an injured brain. Yeah. But also, if you're not feeling good, and you're scared, you may want to cope, and you may want to numb out, and you may want to find a um, some some way to help yourself not feel so bad about your situation. Yeah. You can have uh, extreme hormonal imbalances as a, as a result of traumatic brain injury, which again, sets, it affects your mood, it affects your sleep. Everything. So all of these things, yeah, are, are really complex and compounding on each other. And healthcare now, modern medicine, we understand a lot, but we don't know everything. And it's really hard sometimes to heal and address all of these issues it's, there are doctors and physicians who are working on this and do have a good understanding of it, but they're rare and it's hard to find those mm -hmm. folks. It does take a multi-pronged approach and, uh, it, you know, it's, it's challenging. There are new centers that are popping up to address traumatic brain injury in the long, you know, kind of the chronic phases, the long-term phases of it. But again, they're still rare and sometimes it's expensive. It's outside of your normal healthcare. So it's just a challenge, you know, yeah. it's really hard. I don't know that I'm just sitting here thinking if I hear the, the phrase traumatic brain injury, I'm thinking this is chronic. You, you're screwed. That's what I think. Mm -hmm. That's what a lot of people think. Is that true? No. Okay. Thankfully. So you can yeah. heal a traumatic yes. brain injury. You absolutely can. There is hope. And although it's difficult, it, it isn't something that it's, it absolutely can be done and the healing process can occur. But the problem is that most people don't want to do the things that it requires to heal, which means it's so hard. It's hard. It takes a lot of behavioral changes. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, especially for the military community, I, I love I love this community so much and they are like family to me. But one of the things that I really struggle with 
that's hard for me and I get really angry about it is the chronic use of alcohol in this community. Mm. And it's, it's so accepted for everything. If there's a reason to breathe, there's a reason to drink. That's one of the worst things you can do trying to heal a brain. And yet it's the way that a lot of people cope. And that's the one thing that's really hard for people to stop doing because it's like all the people they hang out with as you know, it's like totally. all the, when all the people you hang out with are, are, doing that as part of the culture, it's really hard to make good choices. And I'm sure there's and, like a, we've earned this. Yes. Mentality. Yeah. yeah. And and that's a really big challenge. The other parts of it are, you know, if you're still on active duty or first responders even um, who have really strange hours and their circadian rhythms are all messed up because of the work that they do and the times that they're um, having to show up for work. And it, it just throws off the circadian rhythm and makes sleep really, really challenging. And when I've talked to folks about, hey, you know, if you really are serious about healing your brain, you have to come up with a better plan. Like you have to come up with a better schedule. And they're like, well, I don't want to stop working. And it's like, well, you're only going to get as far as you're going to go with this then, because to go the extra mile, you do have to really commit to making yourself a priority. And it's so hard when you've done something for so long and it's always been this way. And now you're looking at having to completely upend your life and change things. But it's like, I always ask these questions of people, like, how bad do you want it? Do you really want to heal? Because it's going to require some pretty major changes for a lot of people. And um, I don't think that's a bad thing because radical change comes with radical growth a lot of times. And not only can you get the life you've always wanted uh, by healing your brain, getting your quality of life back, but you're probably going to have an even better life because you've all, you made all these other good changes for yourself too, and started prioritizing your health. And these communities are really bad at that because they're the helpers and the givers and the ones who serve. And so they Mm -hmm. put themselves last all the time Mm -hmm. and prioritize everybody else. And this is something where it's like, I really have to twist people's arms to get them to see, you know, you have to show up for yourself first and you will be so much better for everybody else because of that but you've got to prioritize yourself and it's, it's really hard for them yeah i mean that's like just such a core identity issue that mm-hmm. it's really hard to turn that ship you know it but it but it it is possible um yeah I, and i'm speaking from my world what i know is and it's not there's some overlap but yours is mm-hmm. is i would say sometimes more complicated so your work shows that traumatic brain injury sometimes shows commonalities with symptoms of PTSD. Mm-hmm. How is that? Talk about that. I think PTSD is, we think of, at least I think of military, you know, any trauma that they have incurred is PTSD. That's what it is. Right. And right. I don't know that we really understand PTSD that well, um, but talk through that. Yeah. The, there is a lot of overlap and, and that's kind of what I was saying before about the, sometimes there's, there can be misdiagnoses in these communities of, oh, well, that's just PTSD. And sometimes it's not, sometimes it's traumatic brain injury, but the docs don't know the difference or they don't know enough about TBI to know that that might be what's going on, or maybe the person didn't mention it, but so there's a lot of overlap, but for, for folks who don't know, a lot about PTSD, which is probably most people, because even those who have been diagnosed with it, their their physicians and psychologists, psychiatrists haven't explained it to them. 
So they're told that, but then they don't know why. Yeah. Um, so for those who, who want to know, it, it does require a, a precipitating traumatic event. So something that happened to you personally or that you witnessed that's a life or death situation where your body literally was in fight or flight, I'm, I'm going to die kind of mode. So that has to precipitate whatever it is that's going on. Um, sometimes for people that can be, it can be a single event or it can be chronic and unpredictable over time um, where it's just kind of like every day you show up and there's some sort of like, you're just stuck in that fight or flight mode. So that mm -hmm. happens. And I want people to know that if you experience trauma, that it's normal for a while afterwards to feel off, to feel on edge, to feel nervous, to not sleep well. That doesn't mean you have PTSD. It means that you experience trauma and that's a hard thing. Mm. And your body will recover over time, most likely. However, if it doesn't, what the diagnosis is, and I'm not saying this timeline is, is right or accurate, but what the timeline is for diagnosis is 30 days. If after 30 days you have prolonged symptoms, then you will be diagnosed. You could be diagnosed with PTSD. And what the symptoms are that are required are symptoms of uh, intrusion. So you can think of th those as like uh, flashbacks or nightmares mm -hmm. where you're brought back to the traumatic event or something else that's traumatic. So mm -hmm. symptoms of intrusion, symptoms of avoidance, where you'll change your behavior consciously or unconsciously to avoid any situation or place where you might be triggered. So where you're literally changing your behavior because of it. Changes in mood or cognition. So if you are depressed, if you can't remember things well, um, anything along those lines where you're um, struggling with mood or cognition, that's another required symptom and then um, hyper arousal. So mm. this can show up as hypervigilance where you're literally unable to uh, rest because you're just always on, um, enhanced startle response, all of those types of things fit in those categories. So you have to have all of those and they all have to be those. prolonged. Okay. Yeah. So it's a, PTSD is actually a, a really complex, yes. specific diagnosis. It is. It is very complex. And it can resolve over time. You can actively, it can resolve over time if you do nothing. It has, that has happened, but it can also resolve over time if you actively work at addressing it. You, you kind of have to rewire your whole nervous system. Mm -hmm. It's like your nervous system is stuck with your foot on the gas and your sympathetic nervous system is just on overdrive, meaning that you're in fight or flight mode all the time. Yeah. And it takes a lot of work, but you can rewire yourself. And it, it definitely is something that, you know, is hard to do alone. You need community, you need good people to do that. Hi, I'm Michael. I'm the executive producer of Tell Me Something True, and I co-created the show with Laura. You know, we have one goal here, put something into the world that helps all of us figure out how we can have a better week. And we think that the best way to do that is to keep the pod ad free so that all of the work goes toward making something that's useful for you instead of hustling to keep advertisers happy. And this is where you come in. TMST Plus is the membership program that helps to keep this show going. Whether it's through a monthly membership or a one-time contribution, TMST Plus members are super important 
because they help to pay for the show's production and distribution costs. It's pretty sweet, makes a difference, and you can make it happen with a one-time gift for as little as 5 or 10 or $20 a month. If your situation is such that becoming a member doesn't work, it's all good. We hope you enjoy the show, maybe share it with a friend or two, and we hope you check out the playlist that we put together every week on Spotify. Just search the playlists for Tell Me Something True. It's free, and we're thrilled that you're here. And if you could become a member, well, you can find the link in the show description. Head over to tmstpod.com. Takes less than two minutes. And thanks. Can you talk about the clinical, literal meaning of triggered? It's a (laughs) word that comes up everywhere all the time, right? Yeah. And um, I hear it constantly in recovery communities of that triggered me. And sometimes that's true. I think they are, they have actually experienced a trigger, but Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times it's discomfort that made me yeah. uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about the concept of a trigger, what that yeah. actually means? In the, in the context of PTSD, it would be something that um, sets a person off to be in that full flight or fight mode or freeze um, that is bringing them back to a place that feels like life or death where they're in it and they, it feels so real to them at that time that they're unable to, they're, they may consciously be like, you know, I'm not in that place. I can see that I'm looking around, but their body is like, Hey, guess what? I don't give a shit. It, Cause it feels like we are. And it feels like I'm about to die. There's that, that really intense um, feeling in your body, even though your mind is like very clear that, you know, you're okay. Your body is like, we're not okay. But that is very different than the way that a lot of times people use it, (laughs) which is something like, you know, that triggered me. And it just meant that they might've had a brief sympathetic increase because they got angry. And like, that's what they're saying. It made me angry. Like that's a normal response an emotional response to (laughs) something that maybe was um, an insult to you that you get upset about. Like that's different than the clinical term being triggered, Triggered. like in the context of PTSD. Thank you. It's much more severe. Yeah. Yeah. In a clinical sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, and being uncomfortable and being emotionally aroused, whether you're anger, angry, scared, frustrated, you know, um, or even the, the feeling like, Oh, I, it comes up a lot in recovery communities. Oh, I'm triggered now. I want to drink. It's like, but we, but that's, you know, uh, if you have drank at your feelings for any period of time, of course you're uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Your brain goes boop, drink, right? Doesn't right. mean you're triggered. So I want to get us all into this place because next I want to turn into these communities, the veterans and first responders with the like you, the endless wars we've been fighting and then the pandemic mm. and then this unbelievable amount of gun violence. There is trauma all around us in the first responder and veteran communities. Mm-hmm. Are we paying sufficient attention to this? 
I don't think so. I don't think we're even close. Um, yeah, we are missing so much because these are communities that, and I think it's, it's beyond these communities. And I would be willing to say that it's probably a lot of, a lot of people in general now, but, um, especially in these communities, people suffer in silence anyway, and they're not the type to ask for help. And they are the kind to pretend like they're fine when they're not until it, it, they just are forced to face something. They're in an emergency. Yes, they're in crisis. And um, that's already going on. But because we've had even greater isolation, greater infighting among, you know, like politics aside, just communities, culturally, there's so many different things that people that are dividing people where they're not trusting each other and there is no sense of community or it's like, you know, our community versus your community. And there's so much of that going on where people aren't okay, but then the people who are um, like the first responders and veterans, but especially first responders who are, you know, sometimes public enemy number one in certain places. Yeah. Um, they're, they're really struggling and they're not likely to ask for help. I see this all the time in law enforcement, the fire service. They're, they're like, you know, I don't, yeah, I, it, it breaks my heart. It really breaks my heart. Um, and I don't know what the answer is. I, I think that's probably why I've got into doing this personally, because I'm like, I don't know how to help, but I know that I want to try. And yeah. if it's just one person that I can work with and help, then that's, it's worth it to me. But we've got to change the narrative that we have as a, as a community, as a society, when we come to not just these groups of people, but it's like, you know, nobody has a monopoly, monopoly on suffering. We're all hurting in some way. And we've got to stop tearing each other down and, and looking for ways to hate on one another instead of uh, instead of just coming together and helping each other and acknowledging, hey, I'm a human, I'm suffering, and I'm dealing with all these things. And that means you probably are too, in yeah. some way, because we're, we have more, more similar than we do different. And much of the way we talk about trauma points to the origination in childhood. That's another sort mm -hmm. of, I guess, psychological phenomenon, which is a helpful, I would say, evolution of in some ways of culture that, you know, up to a certain point, there was no really no recognition of that, that this, you know, you might be traumatized by your childhood. And then, <laughs> um, and now there is, and maybe it's, you know, overcorrected a, a little bit, but, um, but then we also talk about it too in relationships, you know, I was traumatized by this relationship. So you are working with people who have experienced the trauma origination as young adults though, in, in like mm -hmm. in their not to say they didn't have prior trauma, but into their 30s. So mm -hmm. I'm interested in, you know, how this, that how people integrate that change later in life. Like I thought of myself one way and now I have to think of myself in a new way. And how much is that part of the struggle? You talked about that. You touched on this in a couple questions ago when saying, you know, that things that I'd always been able to work and I'd always been able to function in this certain way and now I can't. Is there anything you could talk, anything you could add to that, that you've seen about having this happen to people later in life? I think that 
in in a lot of ways, the transition out of the military kind of precipitates this for some people. So as they're retiring, they're at a place where they kind of have to reinvent themselves anyway, because they're no longer that title. Um, and so that's sort of a natural, ch- a natural change for some people where they're in a good place. It sets people up well to be able to look at that. Some people fight it and, and they identify with that, that part of who they are and the job that they did for their whole lives and they don't ever want to let it go. And you can see that. Um, there are others who uh, say, you know what, that was a cool thing that I did. I'm grateful for the experiences, but it's time to move on and do something new. And that sets them up for success and, and truly happiness as they move into the next chapters of their lives. Yeah. Outside of the military, in the first responder community, some people that I've worked with have decided to retire. Others have decided to stay in and, and still do the jobs that they were doing. But they really did have to make some pretty radical changes. And especially for those with families, as, as you know, one person changes one thing, it, it forces a change in the whole family because of it. And that can be really challenging and really hard, even if it's good. And that's where... Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's I see that where... happen all the time with sobriety. <laughs> Seriously, yeah. one person gets sober and it you would think it just you know instantly heal the family. And now it, right. it often throws it into a bit of chaos first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can be really challenging. And that's where I think, you know, I keep kind of coming back to this idea of community and support, but I really do believe that as we go through these hard things, we can't do it in a vacuum and we can't do it alone. And and sometimes even with your own family, you need people beyond that little bubble. You really do need support and people who are in it with you who can understand it or people who've already been through it so they can share lessons learned. But the people who are, who are able to hold space for you to allow you to move into these new places. I mean, when you're doing these kinds of things alone, it's really hard to say, I want to make all these changes because it is the unknown and you do feel all of a sudden like you're in free fall and there's nobody there to help hold you. And yeah. that's a scary place to be. Yeah. So to have a community or some sort of support system, I think this is why there's a lot of veteran focused nonprofits popping up all over the place because they're all recognizing, hey, we've got to do better for each other and let's create little communities all over the place where we can create space and allow people to come out and have their experiences and set, set people up for success. And I think the veteran community is doing that really well. The first responder community is not at mm. all. They are so far behind where the veteran community is with that kind That's of thing. So interesting. That it, it is because there are a lot of veterans who go into the first responder community and become law enforcement or fire service or EMS. And um, you don't see the support for some reason. And, and that, you know, maybe they rely too much on normal channels of community funding and that type of thing. There are nonprofits who are focused on first responders. They just are not anywhere near as, as, as popular, as big or as many. I also so. would have to imagine it has something to do with the fact that the fact that despite there are differences, you know, politically and so on, but it seems like one of the core issues that, and the few issues that people in the U.S. can unite on is that is a respect for military. Mm -hmm. Uh, Definitely. Yeah. And that's not true for first responders. I think, you know, firefighters, I think it it varies by by role. Mm -hmm. 
job, but that's not true anymore. And right. that has to play into all of this in mm-hmm. in a big way. You know, when you used to be respected and revered and idolized in some ways, and now it's not, that's not always true. And, and, and not only is it not true, it's like you're, you're hated. Mm-hmm. Um, that's got to add this other psychological layer to, oh, to all yeah. of it. It is. It's, it's, um, you know, I work with a lot of people from the law enforcement community as, as a coach, but also just as a friend. And many of them struggle with that fear of being hated. And Mm. people don't understand, like they're working in their own community. So when they're trying to keep their community members safe and they have to arrest somebody for something, they may run into that person again. It's not like the military overseas where you're never going to see those people again. It's like, this is something where if you arrest somebody for some, something and encounter them again, this happened to a friend of mine in Colorado who had to arrest somebody and she ended up being his waitress at a restaurant a few weeks later. And it was really scary for him because he's like, he wasn't sure if she remembered. And then, you know, he's like, not that he was fearful for his life, but it was just a really uncomfortable scenario for him to have to be faced with that every, every day, literally of his life where he's encountering that knowing that the people of his community hate him and he's there just to serve and keep people safe. And yeah, you know, he just, it, it adds a whole other level of stress that they already deal with. And that, that chronic stress, I mean, I know people talk about being resilient and t- talking about different modalities of you know, tools that can be helpful for promoting resilience. But the truth is, as human beings, we can only handle so much of that type of stress before we're overloaded. And we're seeing it everywhere where people are at the end of what they can tolerate. And that leads to a lot of these reactionary Choices. Choices. Is stress just an overarching, more or less meaningless word? Like (laughs) that we used to describe, you know, all kinds Mm -hmm. of things? Or is it something that's clinical that you can study, quantify? Do you you study? Has it ever been part of your research? Stress. Like when Mm -hmm. we're talking about stress, what do we, what does that actually mean? Yeah, it's, um, it's kind of, awesome and also maybe not so awesome at the same time that we have physiologically speaking one generic response system for everything so whether it is something that um you know to use this (laughs) cliched um analogy of a lion you know having a lion chase you and you're being fearful for your life your body is is you know quote unquote stressed at that time meaning that your stress response system is activated and the idea is to mobilize at that point. So you're either going to, like I mentioned before, you're either going to fight that lion or you're going to uh, flee. You're going to run, but you need to have your body like fully active, very alert, ready and capable to handle whatever's coming at you. So that's a very classic example of how that occurs. But the same system is at play when we have a psychological stressor, meaning that, um, you know, say you're, you're financially hurting and your boss just said that, you know, you're going to have to go down to halftime for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And you're already stressed. The financial stress is a, is a major stressor for people. Mm-hmm. Health issues 
the psychological impact of knowing that you or a loved one has some sort of health issue is a major stressor. Um, marital issues, getting a divorce, getting married, even if it's positive, those are major, you know, stressors in your life. Kids. And kids, yeah, the, yes, all of those things. And they're, they're chronic, meaning that they don't really ever go away. It's not like a lion chases you, you escape, and then you're good. This is something where it's always kind of going on in the back of your mind. And it, it, perspective is a huge player into this. So mm. how you think about what's going on in your life can contribute to your stress response. In, like it's directly applicable to how your body responds. So if you're able to like do some Jedi mind tricks and tell yourself like, this isn't a big deal and everything's okay, you won't react stress, like stress, stress wise, your body won't be physiologically aroused to go uh, fight a lion or flee from a lion, but it, you can't just say that in your head. You have to really believe it in your body yeah. and that some people can do that. Um, it takes time and, and practice, but that is one thing that we can do to help ourselves is really work on shifting our perspective. So we don't feel that activation every time, but to answer your question, um, it's all the same system. And today, in today's world, we have a lot of psychological stressors. I mean, just during the pandemic alone, there was so much was going say. on for people. Yeah, and just yeah. prolonged mm -hmm. uh, the pressure just day after day. Is and I think even – I certainly discounted that. It's like you hit this wall – I hit walls at various points of just going, what's wrong? Like I, I've got – nothing left mm -hmm. or I'm super moody or yeah uh, and I didn't have some stressors that tons of other people had and still mm -hmm. it's it's there I, I want to loop back to the Jedi mind tricks thing just <laughs> and linger there for a minute because you said it kind of jokingly but what do you mean by that and and what are some of those practical but effective things that people could do to work on that it is kind of a joke, but it is like there are there are tools for that. And uh, one of the things that I always tell people, so a lot of people throw out meditation and they're like, oh, I'll just meditate and do the whatever, right? But like for 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 many of us who um, you know don't like to sit still, or maybe we're only told that meditation looks you know only looks like this, or there's only one kind, you know, it's not always the best solution for people. So I like to tell people to just tap into. They're, they're breathing. There's some pretty uh, simple breath practices that you can do immediately that tap into your parasympathetic nervous system and calm you down a bit and basically take your foot off the gas pedal. Yeah. Um, and the longer that you can do that, the better off you'll be. But the key is, is not just the, the key isn't just getting comfortable and safe in your body, which is, that is a, a, like, I would say the most important part, but the part of it that's required is the thinking part too. So as you're, as you're doing these breathing practices and you're really feeling into your body, you're feeling your body relax and calm down and feel safe and, and peaceful, that is when you can rationally think like, okay, these things aren't going, you know, they're, they're not as big of a deal as they need to be, or they're a big deal, but I can, I can stick with it. I can move through this. I can overcome it. I don't need to let it completely derail me and not leave me um, able to do all the other things I need to do. You can kind of do some self-talk, but yeah. it needs to happen in parallel with your body being calm. Like you can't, I joke about this too. I say you can't talk yourself out of a sympathetic state, but you can breathe yourself 
there. And Oh, I love that. <laughs> I that's... man, I, I hear you. It I have learned and been taught and practiced. And so I know it's true that our breath is like the most powerful tool we have to regulate our mm -hmm. nervous system. But I love that you added the thought piece in there because the, the simple thought that I use is there's nothing to solve right now. Mm -hmm. I love like that. When you're in just that breathing space, there could be a lot going on but mm -hmm. right this second, if you can just allow yourself to truly feel for one breath and two and then maybe for a minute, that there is actually no problem right now mm -hmm. and there's nothing to solve right now. Yeah. It's so simple. It's hard to grasp, but man, that is a life changer for me. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's spot on when you're in that moment, the most important and the only thing you need to be focused on is breathing. Mm. Yeah. That's it. I'm really glad that came up. So I wanted to sort of move towards the, the treatment and healing part. And we kind of, we did naturally. What is the biggest, the biggest challenges you experience with getting people to be receptive to therapy? You talked about some of this, uh, quite a bit of it actually, um, the fact that they don't want to do the work to give up, you know, their life as it is. Yeah. What are some of the other things that the challenges that you, that you hit, you talked about alcohol too. Are there anything, anything else that stands out as a particular theme or a challenge to get people to try to do these interventions? I think there's a, uh, there's for many people, there still seems to be a stigma, um, around asking for help. So even though they're kind of, you know, there's taking that step and saying, I need help. There's still like a resistance to it because it is stigmatized and people don't talk about it. And I can't tell you how many conversations I've had where somebody's saying stuff to me on the phone about like how fucked up they think they are and all of the crazy things that they're doing. And they're like almost apologetic to me by saying all these things. And like, I'm such a lost cause and I'm a mess. And I'm like, hey, guess what? Welcome to the club. Because you know how many times I've had this conversation and you know how many times I could hold up a mirror in my own life and show you equally grotesque things about, you know, myself that all came from a place of pain and wanting to be okay and that's, that's okay. Like you're a human being and there's so much shame around, around those things that we do. And, and because people don't talk about it enough, there's that stigma and there's that fear that I'm the worst. I'm the most awful. I've done the things that are the most horrific. That's, that is a real barrier for people. And especially in these communities that are so you know, known for being tough and mm. macho, whether you're a man or a woman, it doesn't matter. It's like tough and macho. Like the women I know in these communities are complete badasses. And I see them all doing the same thing uh, where I'm fine. I don't have, you know, I don't, I don't have any issues. I, you know, or if I have issues, I have ways to cope or, you know, all of the things that, that, that we say to kind of rationalize us continuing along and not having the spotlight shown on us because, right. That, that's just part of it. And I think 
like what you're doing on this podcast and what other people are doing in the community by not only giving a voice to this realness, but a megaphone and saying, hey, this is a big conversation that needs to be had loudly. And we need to talk about what it is to be a human. You know, these are the communities I work with, but but it's a, these are all human issues. Yeah. And that that to me is like the really, I think the biggest obstacle for all of them, all the folks that I work with is, is just the shame and the stigma for asking for help and the belief that because when they have asked for help in the past, maybe that they, they haven't gotten it or maybe it's been dismissed. And so there's that kind of overcoming the, you know, see, this is why I don't ask for help kind of thing. Yep. Um, so yeah, it's, it is a really, it's a challenge. It's, yeah. it's hard That's to work That's super helpful with. though, just naming that um, and that it is, it's completely human. Everything you're saying is what I see in a different space. You have your own, your own experience. You just mentioned your own behaviors, your own experiences, struggling with compulsive and controlling behavior around food and body and clinicians. Typically, I think that's lessening now, but they're trained to leave their personal experience at the door and just out of the, out of a setting. I know you're not a therapist, but you're, you're a coach, you're a helper. Mm -hmm. So, but you have found ways to integrate your own experience and to build trust with these communities by sharing some of your own struggles, I assume, Mm -hmm. based on Mm -hmm. what you said. And um, would you mind sharing some of that so we can know more about you? Absolutely. Yeah. For, for those who don't know, I mean, for the longest time, I, I think probably started when I was super young, like really, really young, but didn't really show up for me uh, as an eating disorder until I was maybe 18. And for me, again, you know, all of the hours that I have spent in therapy and working with people on an individual basis or group basis for myself being the patient, you know, I think I've really come to understand what gives rise to eating disorders and why people choose those and the types of people that go, you know, move in that direction as a, to use that as a tool. And it's, there's a lot of pain. There is a lot of pain there. And, you know, same for folks who choose other tools, maybe alcohol or maybe something else. We all choose a tool to deal with really challenging experiences that we don't know how to hold. And underneath all of these things, whether it's addiction or um, other types of behaviors, there's there's significant trauma, there's significant pain. And I, I don't think that I really understood that till I started doing my own work, which was in parallel with kind of working with these communities where, you know, I saw in myself like this, you know, I, I guess to be completely like parallel with the other communities, I didn't ask for help because I was like, yeah. I'm fine. This yep. isn't an issue. I've got it under control or I'll deal with it and overcome it when I'm ready. But right now I don't care. And, you know, all of the things. And I've seen that in other people that I've worked with. And I know what it's like to be alone. I know what it's like to want to change and to want help and to feel completely hopeless. And um, my eating disorder was also uh, paralleled with alcohol abuse. Mm -hmm. Um, So anytime I drank more, my eating disorder would show up in full force and they went hand in hand. And then I would want to drink more because I was so ashamed about my behaviors. And it, it was, yeah. And it was, to me, it was ugly and horrific and, you know, just 
all of the things that are like the worst, right? Like I, I said just a second ago, all of that. And then as I started to recognize that I wanted to heal, I started to experiment and use myself as kind of a guinea pig with like my own, like what tools are going to work for this? What tools are going to address the behaviors? What tools are going to address the deep-seated traumas? How am I going to start learning how to feel my feelings? Because God forbid I do that, you know, like how do we, (laughs) how do we, um, how do I set myself up for not just like, it it was really just learning how to be a human being again and, and heal. So all of that was kind of going on. It, It sort of preceded the work I do now and then was in parallel with the work that I do now. And my recovery process has been the hardest thing I have ever done in my life. And it's even with all the knowledge, even <laughs> with all that, I want people yeah. to hear that because yes, a lot of people that listen to this, I know, and in, and are in my, you know, like the luckiest club and, and, and in recovery communities are in helping professions and they, it, I've done this too. Like, mm-hmm. I know I talk about this stuff all day long. I teach oh, yeah. this stuff. I have read every yep. book. I have all the information. It's not. We enough. know what to do. It's yeah. not enough. Yeah, it's the same. I mean, that's that's exactly it. And you could have all the information. You could know exactly what to do to take care of yourself, or to heal, or to overcome something, or to uh, to go move through transformational recovery. You could know all of it, but until you really start living it and practicing it, and, and I always say embody it, because the body is required. You can't just hold these ideas in your head. It's just knowledge, but it doesn't become wisdom until you experience it and own it as something you really felt in your body. And for so long, it was just these, these were just concepts for me. And it wasn't until I got serious about recovery and naming my truth and explaining what was going on for me and allowing people to see me and experiencing that the scary shakiness of, of, you know, being seen for the first time in all of my ugly parts that I thought people would just be like, you know, oh, you don't deserve love, all of the things that I was so fearful of that we all are. And then to have people be able to sit there and say the things that I would say to them that they were saying to me, where it was like, hey, join the club, you know, welcome. (laughs) We're happy you're here. Yeah, yeah. And I think that was the most powerful thing for me. And that's what has allowed me to show up for the people that I work with, where it's like, hey, I I do understand. And I'm telling you that I am not above you or below you. As I'm saying this, I'm right next to you. And, you know, we can walk through the shit together and I'm not going to fix it for you, but I can hold your hand and I can shine a flashlight into the corners and and we can talk about whether we want to walk over there and look at things together. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. It's awesome. You said embodied. And I think there's this, uh, there's this thing we say about you got to feel it in your body. It has to be embodied. Like, what does that actually mean? Yeah. So this is something else that again, through my own journey, I really came to understand because I threw it around as a term, again, concept in my head of like, sure, embodiment, 
for me, embodiment is something where I'm able to have whatever thoughts or memories, whatever's coming up for me, but rather than living up here in my head and being in that world of just thoughts and, and storylines, I it, it forces something to come up in my body where I have a feeling. And it's something that like I'm very aware of at the time. So it could be, it could just be contentedness. It could be anger. It could be sadness. It could be guilt. It could be any of the things that, you know, Brene Brown has a great book on, it's called the Atlas of the Heart, talking about all the different emotions that are out there that people are maybe not aware of. And if you struggle with naming things, that's a great book to digest because it can help you. The, the sooner we're able to identify and name the things that are coming up for us and feel it in our body, the sooner we're able to really be embodied in those moments. And so for me, it's, it's about the feelings that come up when you're thinking about something or experiencing something. It's, it's identifying them, being able to sit with them. And then that all of a sudden is like, you're, you're here, you're in your body because there's so much all the time that's coming up. That's information for us, but we really get good at not being aware of it. And to me that that isn't embodiment. And it doesn't mean just feeling your body, which is what I thought for so long. It's like, well, I can feel my fingers and my toes and you know, I'm like meditation will do this where you're like, I feel the cushion under my, under my butt. Like I feel mm -hmm. the back of mm -hmm. the chair. That's part of it. But to me, it's the feeling, the feelings, the emotions, the literal energy shifts and the heat and the cold and mm -hmm. the discomfort and the, the sobs or the, the, you know, expansion of the heart in joy, mm -hmm. which can feel terrifying. And so the actual sort of weathering of <clears throat> those emotional, I want to say energetic because emotional still I can like put up in my head. It's like that those mm -hmm. energetic, uh, yeah. with the energetic weather that that passes through us, and and we can get we get really good at repressing it for sure and just sort of stuffing it, but also using our minds to get us out of it. This continual mm -hmm. shifting of story to like oh, yeah. pull ourselves out, which is this. That, uh, that's what I do. And it's, mm -hmm. it's sneaky. You don't know that you're doing it because it works pretty well. It does. And especially when you've done it for so long, mm -hmm. but yeah. I, I love that the energetic weather of yeah. your body. That's so good. Pretty, is it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Any last thoughts that you have about sort of our larger, I guess, societal obligation to provide care and, if not care, then at least respect and compassion towards these groups of people that you focus on? First of all, I appreciate that question. Um, I would encourage people to focus on under like having self-compassion first and understanding themselves and really seeing all of the ways that they show up in the world, the good and the bad, the pleasant and unpleasant, all of those things. And I would ask them to get really familiar with that and then be able to take that and look at these people because mm -hmm. they're not, it's so easy to objectify somebody and just make them a thing that is all bad or whatever, you, you know, you want to call it however they want to uh, term that, but you can't, ignore the humanity of other people when you're in touch with it. 
in yourself. And I just wish that we could all focus on that because the world would be a better place if we were all able to do that. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Uh, Well, I'm so glad you're, I'm truly grateful that you are out there doing the work that you're doing. uh, Thank you. And that someone like you exists and is sort of, you're blazing a different trail, like truly for, for a lot of people. So thank Thank you. you. It feels like an uphill battle, but it's like, you know, that's, that's why we're all here. We're all just doing a little piece of the work in our own little corner and it takes all of us doing it together. So I'm grateful that I found my way here and I feel lucky to be able to do what I'm passionate about. If someone is listening and they themselves or they have a family member or a friend or someone that need that that needs what you're doing, where could they find you? Probably the best place would either be to send me an email at kate at docpate.com or um, to find me on IG. It's docpate, uh, D-O-C period, P-A-T-E. Those are really the main platforms or ways that I interact with folks these days. I'm trying to keep a low profile elsewhere so I don't have to deal with too much. But yeah, that would be. And please, if there's questions or people need help or they're just curious or whatever, I'm, I'm super approachable, really friendly, and I'm always happy to help. Thank you for being with us today. If you want more TMST, head on over to tmstpod.com and become a member. Members get access to the full uncut versions of these conversations, opportunities to submit questions for AMAs, and invites to join me for members-only events. We decided from the beginning to make this an independent project. We don't have sponsors and we don't run ads. This means we can make the show all about you and not what our sponsors or advertisers want, but it also means we're 100% reliant on you for support. So my request and my invitation is simple. Support the show by becoming a member. You can do this for as little as $5 a month. I cannot stress this enough. You could make a huge difference for as little as $5. Please head on over to tmstpod.com right now. Tell Me Something True is engineered and mixed by Paul Chufo. Michael Elsesser and I dreamed up this show and we're looking forward to joining you online and next time on Tell Me Something True.